Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's time for us to have an art attack. Art attack, attack, attack. Here's our fortnightly visual arts review segment that's actually been longing runder, running longer, get my words right, uh, than smart arts as a show because when I first started doing a visual arts program on this here radio station back in about 1999, uh, Ty Snaith uh, jumped on and helped review for me and you're still here. <laughs> you haven't got sick of me. No, I haven't died or anything. I'm, I'm still here. I'm glad. <laughs> it was. You uh, and Jeff Kahn were my yes, original reviewers. Uh, Jeff. Hey, Jeff, if you're listening, you could come back in. He's in Melbourne again He is, now. yes, yeah. looking after Asia Topa mm. at Art Centre Melbourne. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe we should have him as a guest. Sometime. I'm looking forward to that at some stage. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, oh, with that lovely introduction of period sex, thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a great um, little track, great little band. <laughs> And welcome back to your first segment for the year. Yeah, I feel like I was kind of trying to work out if that was the case, but it is. Yeah, it's a new year. I feel like a lot's happened already. So it's definitely got a bit of momentum this year, doesn't it? It's, um, it's running. It's hit the ground running. It has. Sure. Um, no, I, I've had a great start to the year. I'm super busy, but I've managed to get out and see two shows actually this week. And luckily we've got enough time to talk about them both because sometimes, well, usually I do see two shows, if not more, um, so that I can choose the best one to talk about but this time I really do want to talk about both so let's do that. Sure, so the, let's do it. the first one is at Futures Gallery which is in Easy Street. Um, the, the sound of my voice is weird like I haven't been on radio for so long I'm, I was just like is that me? It's me. It's definitely you. <laughs> There's uh, nobody else here. <laughs> is in Futures, uh, Futures Gallery in Easy Street in Collingwood and the title of the show is The Past is Present, which is actually a really beautiful poetic title because it's not the past is the present, it's the past is present, as if the past is in the room with us, Richard. The past is present, like the artist is present, the famous um, performance, but it's by Hutan Heydari. And it is, I mean, if I had to summarise this show into sort of like one sentence, which I don't have to, but I'm going to anyway, um, it would be sort of like, they're like capsules of nostalgia, but the more that I thought about it, they're more like capsules of anti-nostalgia or denial of nostalgia. So when I say capsules, they're not, they're not paintings and they're not necessarily um, sculptures. They're sort of like vitrines, I think, is the best way that uh, Zara, who's the gallerist there, has described them in the room sheet. And vitrines works well. So they're wall-mounted, um, deep steel frames that are actually really beautifully made where the top bit sort of slides in to create the, the closing mechanism. And they're, they're really lovely. And they, they make a deep frame and then they have, you know, perspex at the front. And in that frame are different sort of objects that create sort of little visual stories. But they're all uh, very laden with meaning, I guess. They're, but at the same time, they're quite stripped back. So the first one that I sort of was drawn to is 
the back image, you can't really see. It looks like it's, it's a photograph that's been uh, painted in white, so there's only a little bit remaining, which you can't make out what it is. It looks like plaster's been poured over it. So it's like there's something there. And it, it does sort of hint at this covered meaning, but then in the front bit of the frame, there's all these plaster keys, white keys, that almost look like sticks of chalk, so they're very brittle. Um, and the, the process of, I guess, you know, casting is, is evident, but also they look like sticks of chalk that might have been used to inscribe something. Some of them are broken off, but then it sort of get, gives you that brittleness of, like, broken bones or... There's a lot of layered meaning in this work that um, your brain can't help but kind of jump to these conclusions. And then when you learn a little bit more about um, Heydari, about Hutan Heydari, um, he actually came to Melbourne at age nine from Tehran. And so a lot of this work was about, you know, his family um, were fleeing the Islamic Revolution of 1979 and a lot of these objects in the boxes are sort of referring to that. But there's one particularly, I think, that does it very eloquently, is like a stack of photographs. So it's like his parents' photographs and they're stacked up, um, but then each one is dipped in plaster. So from a distance, you can just see this quite almost minimal um, object of these white sheets stacked up. But when you get up close, you realise they're these old-fashioned photographs that have been meticulously dipped in plaster, dried, and then stacked. So there's this fragility and there's this real care, like a very sort of tenderness, but then denial. Like, we can't see the image, you know? Which is fascinating because on... Uh wrapping something in plaster bandages, for example. Yeah. It's what you do with a broken a limb. Yep. In this case, a broken memory, perhaps. So yes. uh, it's supporting the memory and allowing it to heal while simultaneously denying somebody uh, who doesn't know what that memory is the opportunity yeah. to observe it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's this real sort of cinematic quality to it where you're sort of being revealed a little bit, but at the same time those memories are kept precious and, and to him, so we're not allowed, you know. Um, there's one as well that is called Yekibud Yekinabud, and it is a series of um, tapes that have been cassette tapes that have been dipped in plaster and they reference um, Hadari's father's music which was and, and actually the the method um, of transmitting or like um, disseminating sermons of um, Rahulai Khomeini and who was the leader of the Islamic revolution in, in Iran and so when everyone was kind of like split apart or in exile or whatever they used to send around cassette tapes and so Hayton still has the Haydari still has these cassette tapes in his collection, but instead of sort of like playing what's on them to us or even talking about that or even seeing the inscriptions, they're all dipped in plaster also. But then inscribed on the perspex of that work is this repeated um, saying, Yakibud Yakinabud, which means in, it's in Farsi as well, um, and it translates to was there one was not. So one was there, one was not. So it's kind of like this, you know, absence and presence, which I think a lot of his work is about, but it also, that sort of means in, in Farsi, that means once upon a time, like once upon a time, one was there, one was not. So it also has this 
uh, almost like a fairy tale nostalgia, I guess, in a way. So it's like this this memory that was real, but was it real? You know, which is also a really interesting reference uh, to art history mm. when you think about the number of plaster casts of classical sculptures exhibited in museums around the world, for mm. example. Or uh, you can't get uh, an original Greek sculpture, so you go with a plaster cast as a yeah. as a conversation point, as a as a fixture. It's again that notion of the real yet the unreal. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I wrote down when I was after I saw the show. I wrote. I don't often write things down, and I wrote down. It reminds me, these objects all remind me of somewhere between artefacts and talismans. So for me, they're, yeah, like you said, you know, they're not the original marble bust. They're, they're a replica of that or a cast. And there's another work in the show where he's cast pistachio nuts. Um, I'm trying to remember which one that's called. I can't, I'm not very good at tying them to the names. But anyway, it's a big, one, a, one of the biggest vitrines in the show. So probably like a metre wide and deep and it has hundreds of these little plaster pistachio nuts that have been sort of made in two parts and joined together and that was you know his friends and him have labored toiled to make these little pistachio nuts and similarly obviously you haven't eaten those nuts or you can't eat those nuts but you look at them and immediately think of the practice of sitting around passing time eating nuts so yeah they become these symbols or remnants of um to tie to the nostalgia or the thoughts yeah and that reminded me a lot also of the um Ai Weiwei work that he did with sunflower seeds and how you know something as just every day as a nut can have such weight you know of potential growth but also of social connection um cultural food history you know so that's it's a very powerful show and very rich in meaning and yet stripped back in appearance so yeah I really loved the work and the more that I sat with it and thought about it the more it kind of grew on me so I really urge anyone to go down and have a look particularly if you have a practice that is between photography sculpture and painting because I found that quite satisfying you don't often see a practitioner that's working very um evenly between those three fields so So the exhibition is the past is present by Hutan Hadari uh, showing until the 4th of March at Futures Gallery in Collingwood, futuresgallery.com.au for details. Yeah, and apologies if I pronounced any of those names wrong. I'm not great with my Iranian pronunciation. Um, the other show that I saw is just around the corner, so I often like to see these two um, galleries together because you can walk between them. So it's at Gertrude Glasshouse, so not, not the Gertrude that's out at the end of the 86 tram, don't make that mistake. It's uh, the one in Glasshouse Lane in Collingwood. So it's a little space known usually because it has a big glass frontage and also a glass backage. But this show, they have built a wall in front of the back for no apparent reason, but there is a wall and that is listed as one of the works. Uh, This show is called The Drunkard's Cloak. It's by Gavin Bell, Jared Akuja and Simon McGlynn. And these three... Um, artists were formerly known as Greatest Hits so you may have heard of them or people listeners may have heard of them they're no longer known as Greatest Hits just as three names Uh, but they are still working together and they did a sort of residency together recently well in July of 2022 Uh, a residency in France in Chenaud or Chenaud I don't know how you pronounce that I assume that's in the countryside somewhere in France Um, but as a result of this residency they kind of made this show. And The Drunkard's Cloak refers to one of the works in the middle of the show, which is a giant um, 
hopefully you're looking at this work at the moment as well, Richard. It's a giant pig with the body of the pig is a barrel and underneath the body of the pig is a little fire, like some logs, but it's all made in a very sort of shiny, schmick, um, polyurethane-coated kind of, uh, what do you call that, like polystyrene type thing. But it, it looks like a big plastic, almost like the monkey in the barrel barrel. Um, there's that. In the, oh, and if you walk around it, you can very clearly see the anus of the barrel pig and the front of it looks a little bit like, you know, like Thomas the Tank kind of face, like really cute but quite an odd scale, sort of like... Bigger than a small cow, <laughs> much bigger than a pig. Um, anyway, so there's that in the middle of the room. And the drunkard's cloak refers to, you know, the torture practice uh, where they used to make a town drunkard get in a barrel naked and walk through the streets. But I was doing a little bit of research and there were two different ways of doing that. You could cut off the top and the bottom of the barrel and just make them walk along. Or in some places, which was even worse, they just cut the top off and put them in and they had to sit in all their mess. Yeah. And then once a day they would fill it with ice-cold water. And this was a way of publicly shaming drunkards, um, which is lovely, isn't it? Uh, but then it's interesting because they've sort of conflated two torture methods in this work because there's the barrel, but then also it's a pig. Like, you know, do you think, what, what's with the pig? Well, evidently there was another torture method in ancient Greece, which was called the brazen bull, where they would make a sort of, um, what do you call it, a bronze bull, big enough to get inside, like a Trojan horse, a little door on the side, and they would make the criminal get inside and then they would light a fire underneath the big bull. And, if, and to make it even weirder, if they cried out, somehow the ancient Greeks formulated this way to make the, the cries turn into like bull Sounds. The lowing of a yeah, bull. how so, bizarre! How bizarre, right? So, so interestingly, that's the work in the middle of the room, sort of conflating those two torture methods. Um, and then in the corner of the room, there is a beautiful. I don't know what the titles of these works are because I didn't write them down. So sorry about that. Oh no, hang on, they're on the back of the sheet. The one's called Pig. I assume that's the big polystyrene polyurethane pig. Yep. And then the other one's called Candle, which is just a really quite sensitive, tender drawing of a graphite on paper drawing that's about 40 by 30 centimetres of a candle in darkness. So it's quite it's quite a romantic drawing, actually. It's like, a, you know, those old wee-willy-winky candles that you hold that is all dark on the outside and then just light. And I'm not sure what the candle means in, in relevance to this show, but I can only think it's someone with the candle inside the pig because... I mean, I was thinking it would be really dark in there if you were stuck in there, so I'm not sure about the candle. Um, but then in the corner, the other corner, there's this thing called a liar's account, which is a loaf of bread, um, like a big artisan loaf, I guess you say, something you might buy around the corner at, like, um, what's that, to be frank, you know, that artisan bakery? So good. If you haven't been there, it's so good in Collingwood. Oh, my God, I'm obsessed with that place. But... It's like the inside of it has been hollowed out and inside it is just this little nest of four mice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's called a liar's account. So I'm not sure, but there must be some other kind of um, weird history tied to this. I mean, I Googled it, right? I Googled mice in bread and you'd be surprised. There's a lot of photos of mice nested in bread in, in, on the internet. And so it started me thinking about sort of like these types of works, which are obviously way more sort of tongue-in-cheek and ironic and as per 
their work. These artists often work in these uh, in that field, but historically nostalgic. So, and in a, in a way, sort of like internet nostalgia, where you might, you know, like look at one Google bread mice. And then you get a whole page of bread mice and that might take you to a meme that's about mice in bread. And, like, there is a type of internet nostalgia that now we all sort of inhabit as well. And I think this work fits into that category. But it also could be referencing medieval history as well. Of given course, yeah. the connection with the pig and the punishment, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I think it, it came out of their time together, obviously, on residency. And I did see some photos of them sort of sitting around a table with all these reference images laid out and I can only I mean would be great to have sort of a recording of that process because when you work in a collaboration there is a type of magic that happens particularly late at night when you decide on works to make and I think this show is a really beautiful example of people that do that well you know like take risks take conceptual risks but then finish them perfectly so the mice in the bread Really, like, if that's not the most Instagrammed artwork of last week, then I'd be surprised. But um, it, the only thing about it that I found weird was that there were four mice and not three. I mean, I thought it would have made sense that because there's the three of them, there'd be three mice. And but, three blind mice. And three blind mice. But maybe there's a reason for four four mice. I just, I never got to that. So, And then, of course, the fourth, war, uh, fourth sorry, work is the wall. And that is called Supine and Fortified Yogurt. And that is made from construction pine, nails, screws, plasterboard, paint and filler. And so they built a wall over the other glass end of the space. But both those shows are really worth seeing. Oh, and also while I'm on it in that neighbourhood, uh, there's, there's a new gallery in town, Richard. Did you hear about this? No. So Sullivan and Strumpf, who are a very successful Sydney gallery, have started a Melbourne gallery. So Sydney has come to town, which I went to the sort of special artist opening um, the night that I got back to town and it was really refreshing, I have to say. I know there might be a bit of like, oh, Sydney's coming to Melbourne kind of thing, but like I welcomed them with open arms because I, I kind of liked it. Like they had really nice vibe. Lots of the Sydney artists came down. So Ramesh was there and Tony Albert was there and like... You know, they support a lot of really amazing Melbourne artists like Yvette Coppersmith, Sana Mestrum is in the show. It's a great stable of artists. They've got a really nice little space on, I think it's Rupert Street, you know, in Collingwood where Schoolhouse used to be. And they've sort of renovated the space. It's got beautiful open rafters. Oh, Darren Sylvester's also in their stable of artists. Um, but so, oh, Lindy Lee as well. It's, a, it's an amazing um, group of artists they represent. And they've got a solo, uh, not a solo, a group show on at the moment to launch the space. But yeah, the the opening night was really fun. They have non-alcoholic drinks, Richard. Like they're the only gallery I've been to that has offered me a nice tea, um, really nice snacks. So I'm hoping it means that the Melbourne galleries lift their game in terms of snacks provided at openings. <laughs> But, you know, no, it's really nice to have new people, you know, in the neighbourhood. It's yeah. good. So the Drunkard's Cloak, Gavin Bell, uh, Jared... Yeah, don't ask me. Okay. Uh, Jared Kuja, uh, apologies. Uh, and Simon McGlynn showing until the 4th of March at Gertrude Glasshouse, 44 Glasshouse Road, Collingwood. Info at gertrude.org.au. Ty also mentioned uh, the exhibition The Past is Present by Hutton Hadari showing at Futures Gallery. That's futuresgallery.com.au, just around the corner from Gertrude Glasshouse. And Sullivan and Strumpf, their new Collingwood uh, 
Gallery, located at 107 to 109 Rupert Street in Collingwood. I love how you do that, Richard. And so more efficient. info at Sullivan Strumpf, S-T-R-U-M-P-F, sullivanstrumpf.com. Yeah. Excellent. That'll keep you busy on a Saturday afternoon or something. It certainly shall. Dice Day, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Triple R. Time for us to talk independent theatre, and we're going to talk specifically right now about a show called Not All Dictators at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Drummond Street, Carlton. As always, a very quick disclaimer when anything about La Mama happens on the show. I'm the chair of the Committee of Management of La Mama. I don't benefit financially from promoting the theatre and its work. With that out of the way, I'm joined uh, in the studio by Tiffany Barton, who has co-written Not All Dictators at La Mama, which is a work I'm looking forward to unpacking. It's a uh, it's looking at the impact of war, uh, very relevant at the moment given the situation in Ukraine, and what happens when women fight back. Tiffany Barton, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Richard. So, you've co-written this work. Yes, yeah, so the concept was mine, but I wanted to write a play about the three witches of Macbeth. I had written the first scene three years ago. They were plotting a coup. But I didn't know where to take the coup and I didn't know who my Macbeth was. And then when the war broke out, I realised that Putin was the most appropriate modern representation of Macbeth and decided to write the play. But a very smart friend of mine said, Tiffany, with identity politics the way they are these days, you can't tell Ukrainian stories. They're not your stories to tell. And she was absolutely right. And I went home kind of deflated. And then within a matter of days... uh, beautiful piece of divine intervention took place. I came across a fundraiser for... a New York fundraiser for Ukrainian artists. They were doing a 24-hour marathon crossing back and forth between theatre companies. It was great. I watched it for hours. Then I donated, and after I donated, I got an email saying, thank you for your donation. If you would like to collaborate with the Ukrainian artist, please let us know. So, you know, angels, chorus of angels. And um, within two weeks, I was speaking to Natalie Block... I asked to collaborate with a female Ukrainian playwright who was okay to write stories about the war, and I, I mentioned the specific stories. So the concept I has was, had was the three witches were the maiden, the mother and the crone, and they were going to tell the stories of uh, women uh, in the Ukraine war and what was being done to them. Um, Natalie was a very accomplished and is a very accomplished playwright in Ukraine. She's been produced um, independently and by major companies, and she's been published in several different languages. Um, she was right on board, and she delivered three really powerful monologues that are in the play. And then I got to know a bit more about her. Um, it was only six weeks into the war when I met her. She'd fled to Switzerland, um, but she had three sons that were trapped in Kyrgyzstan, which was occupied on the very first day by Russian troops. And she was really afraid. She was isolated, staying in the spare room of some kind strangers in Switzerland and um, really scared about her sons. And so we kind of we bonded and... Um, it was a really, really rich experience for me and it, and it was a real eye-opener to um, learn about the impact of the war on her. Talk to us about the process then of collaborating with somebody who 
is a playwright but has fled from their home and, and yeah. is experiencing trauma. It must yeah. have been challenging for you, uh, for example, not to say, oh, come on, the deadline's coming up and kind of cracking yeah. a whip a little bit. You have to be, I would imagine, very uh, empathic, sympathetic yeah. uh, and being careful to make it a, a true collaboration, not just a collaboration kind of in, in name only. Yeah. Well, first of all, the trauma. I um, spoke to her initially and, and we had to only communicate through email because she couldn't speak English. Um, so I initially said, look, these are going to be quite heavy stories. Are you okay writing them? They don't need to be yours. And she said, I'm absolutely fine. I'm comfortable writing um, heavy material and strong material. And in fact, she was so passionate and angry at Putin and angry at Russia about the war that she she needed something to channel that anger into. So that was great. Um, in terms of collaborating, it was, it, it was actually quite easy because, you know, it was my job to write about the witches and it was her job to tell the war stories. And so, you know, it has this verbatim element to it, the, the telling of the stories, and it was compact. It was just three monologues that I needed delivered and there wasn't a major deadline. I told her to take all the time she needed um, and just kept on chatting to her throughout the process. But, yeah, there was the issue of needing to gain her trust. I could sense that she was a little unsure who she was dealing with. I can, so, I, in some ways, that doesn't surprise me. A stranger contacts yeah. you out of the blue saying, let's collaborate on a project. Absolutely. And I did offer money straight off the bat as well so, because I know that money talks and I gave her an installation immediately as soon as she agreed to do it just to show her that I was good with my word. And then when we started to talk, I said to her, look, Natalie, I have a very generous community. I've run quite a few fundraisers over the years for different causes and, you know, is there any way that my community can support your community? And she got back to me in a couple of days and she said, yes, actually, my best friend is trapped in Kearson and he is a social worker and he's looking after a whole a bunch of orphans there and they desperately need nappies and medical supplies. So I did a fundraiser and sent her the money and um, she sent it through to him and they were very grateful. And I think from that point on, there was some trust established and... Um, and she was look. The script is very full on. It's you know it's in the style of Macbeth. It's hardcore in your face. And I love punk, so it's got a punk sensibility. And she saw that. She picked that up straight away. She said, "Oh, it's very punk, isn't it?" And I said, "Yeah." So, you know, I think part of her was a little taken aback by it, but she came. She slowly came on board, and I think now she's really excited and really proud of the work. Um, and I think I think we've done her work justice as well. I also am fascinated by the fact that, as you say uh, earlier in the conversation, the idea of using the, the three witches, May the, uh, Mother, Maiden, Crone, mm. uh, for example, uh, that came to you years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's, to me, yeah. it's one of those things that I love about the creative process. I mean, mm. um, the... Uh, the film The Banshees of Inish Erin, for example, the, the writer-director of that talked about the fact that he started on the screenplay years ago, wrote the first couple of pages and went, no, this isn't working. I, I don't know what it is, but it's not, it's not ready yet. Yeah, so that yeah. notion that ideas need time to cook. Yeah, sometimes you've just got to leave it in the drawer for a little while and then, and then drag it out. And, yeah, I mean, I had been thinking about The Witches Project for quite a few years, actually, but I just didn't have my Macbeth character. I didn't have my dictator um, so yeah, that was it was quite a quite a revelation when Putin came to mind. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you talk about 
of writing a play in which uh, women are fighting back against a dictator against war, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is uh, the Aristophanes play um, uh, Lysistrata, in which women oh, yes. go, right, we will just withhold <laughs> sex from all of the men. and uh, to, 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 so Which is a beautiful, non-violent strategy, isn't it? Yeah. It's great. W- were you conscious of tapping into any kind of theatrical tradition yeah, in, in, yeah, in we're creating definite, this? Yeah, we were definitely channelling Medea and Lysistrata, as well as Lady Macbeth is a, is a major character, Lady McPhootin. Yeah, and we were we're we're channeling. We we are literally channeling um, archetypes and warriors um, from the past. There's actually a scene in which they do that. So yeah, we're calling on the warriors. We're calling on the archetypes, and uh, we're having a great time with them. I must say, the actresses are having an absolute ball on stage. And you've also added in a burlesque element. And, yes. And song. Yes. So I'm really really excited about this. I was saying to my partner who wrote the music for it. That, you know, I, f- I felt excited about opening night last night, but I said, you don't, you never know until opening night whether it's going to work because I'm doing some really, I've kind of gone out on a limb here. I've combined war narratives with burlesque performance and witchcraft. And I just thought, is it going to work? And there's some comedic elements in there as well, very dark, but, but comedic. And the burlesque was fantastic. So the concept was that this is. Shakespeare meets girlesque, and girlesque is defined by being grotesque, carnivalesque and burlesque. So they perform burlesque strips in which they're parodying major leaders. They do a Putin strip, a ScoMo strip and a Trump strip. And my director, Helen Doig, is hilarious and she's so good with physical comedy and what they came out with was just hilarious and it worked within the context of the play. So I'm really happy about that. It feels like a very... and. Uh this may not make sense to people who don't go to La Mama regularly, but this feels like a really La Mama production. Right, yeah. Partially because of the the blending of different theatrical styles and ideas, yeah. partially the, the kind of strong female energy that it's got. It feels like a, a, a play that wouldn't necessarily get presented elsewhere unless it was kind of uh, smell of an oily rag, independent theatre during Fringe or something like that. Yeah, that's right. It's very La Mama. And I I have to say a huge thank you and I love you to Liz Jones because uh, she has just been such a champion of this script and so kind to me personally. And um, I just love her to bits for all the work she's done. The show actually got... It was supposed to be on last year and it was cancelled last minute because an actress had to pull out. And Liz just really worked hard to get this season up um, in February, and I'm very grateful. It's one of the things that uh, so many productions that were supposed to be on in 2020 or 2021 or 2022, there's this kind of cascading effect. Given that you planned to present it uh, originally last year, mm. kind of what has the delay meant for the production? Has, has oh. it enriched it, for example? Oh, my by God, I'm actually so glad that it happened because um, the director and I debriefed about what was and wasn't working and I ended up deciding to do a major rewrite. My dear friend Claire Strawn, who's a fantastic editor, stepped in and we cut the script in half and she actually dramaturged it and helped me to create Lady McPootin as a central character in the style of Medea, and it is just so slick now. And um, the three, we actually had three new actresses in it, and with the new script, they just brought so much kind of rage, passion, and creative imagination. Helen said they were all bursting with ideas from the very first rehearsal onward, 
And I, we've got a very different play than it would have been last year, and I'm glad. I think it's a much, it's got a much better play than it would have been. Again, I, uh, this just reinforces the the vagaries and the uh, of the creative <laughs> process. That, yeah. Um, sometimes, what seems like a um, a, a delay or a challenge is actually beneficial to the work. Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. Co-written by Tiffany Barton, Not All Dictators is on at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Opened last night, running through until Sunday, this Sunday the 26th. Uh, that's right. And I would love to offer your listeners $15 tickets if they mention the code the promo code Hecate when they book tickets. Do we need to spell Hecate for people? H-E-C-A-T-E. Hecate is one of the characters, one of the witches. So uh, that's uh, the discount code to book to see Not All Dictators at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre on until the 26th. Uh, The Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, around the corner from La Mama HQ. Don't turn up at the last minute to the wrong venue because that mad dash between (laughs) theatres. I've had to do that before. Uh, More info, though, at La Mama dot com dot au tiffany barton thank you so much for coming in thank you so much richard triple r on fm digital online via the app now what have the russian author dostoevsky political satire and crocodiles got to do with, with with each other. If you know the answer to that question, uh, I was going to say answers in the back of a postcard, but that would be pointless because uh, the show we're about to talk about won't be on by the time I get your postcards next week. The Crocodile is happening at 45 downstairs. It is based on the Dostoevsky short story. Joining us to tell us about the production, uh, Cassandra Fumi, who is the director of the show, and designer Dan Barber. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thanks, you, Richard. Richard. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Cass, let's start with you. For people who aren't big on, I don't know, 19th century Russian literature, tell us a little bit about The Crocodile. Well, it was originally published in a journal by Dostoevsky and he never finished The Crocodile. So the character kind of has ended up remaining in this crocodile, which I kind of love. And it's really oh, about a oh, man... The character is inside The Crocodile. Told too much too soon. <laughs> man gets eaten by a crocodile. And in and from the inside of a crocodile, he is able to imagine a world that is different to the one that he is living in. So in the Dostoevsky version, he's very much kind of a cog in the bureaucratic machine. And now our version of this play, which is by... So it was, it was translated by an Englishman called Tom Basden... And he adapted Dostoevsky's short story and he turned Ivan into a actor. And so our Ivan gets eaten by a crocodile and then starts to have a new perspective on life from within inside this crocodile. Okay. <laughs> There's a bit to unpack there. Um, I'm curious to know when this was written because the idea of an artist... Um, in the stomach of a crocodile, reconsidering their life and where they fit in the world of art and what theatre could be and all those things. Sounds like it could have been a COVID response, but I get the feeling the play is a couple of years older than that. Yeah, so the play was written in the early 2000s, so it was very much a kind of response to the uh, attention economy, and that's really where it's coming from. But us staging it, you know, you always make a production with the people and the time that you make it, and... 
it is very much, you know, that is in there. You know, I think of actors who were in their rooms doing voiceovers from cupboards and wardrobes and how we all started to kind of make in our bedrooms. And that is very much in the work as well. So it's still very from the time that we are currently living in. But, yeah, the play was written in the early 2000s and the Dostoevsky was written in 1876. Mm. So it's kind of this piece that's been adapted and adapted and adapted and adapted but what remains is the concept of if you live inside an animal can you look in the world differently dan how the hell (laughs) do you design (laughs) the inside of a crocodile at 45 downstairs well um it's tricky Uh, but cass like fortunately has always said i don't want to see a crocodile on stage um, which is, you know, and we've been quite bold and we still give, like, lots of visual offers. Um, the world is very rich um, with design. It's painterly and crafty. It's all about the artifice of, like, what, what comes with having, like, this meta idea of having an actor as your central character. Um, but in terms of having the crocodile on stage, well, we, we see its bones. Uh, we see its shadows. We allude to it. It's a bit like Jaws until the end. Um, um, Once he is eaten, he is in a different space to the others. So he's actually in a magical box, which, you know, we can talk about, but still come and see the show. There's lots more surprises. But the magical box transforms. So from bench into crocodile. And he is in a separate space to everyone else and unseen in different ways. We've kind of played with that. And the idea of a a babushka, things within Mm. things. So the, the set contains the box and the box contains the actor and then so on and so forth, and the actor being an actor in a play. It's, um, it's all going to get very meta very yeah, quickly. Very, I can very complicated. Very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Now, the two of you have collaborated before, so you already have a, a kind of creative shorthand. Mm. Dan, how helpful for that, uh, how, how helpful was having that creative shorthand when uh, you and Cass started to talk about the project when, for example, you read the script? Yeah, immensely. Uh, so Cass comes from a background of, like, devised work, which is uh, when we worked on The Mermaids in 2002 at La Mama. Uh, It was a thing that didn't have a script and it was devised with kids. Uh, And that's tricky for a set and costume designer because you you look at the script and you can just go, there's a door there that that we need a chair, it's at night. But this had nothing. So things are changing up until opening night, basically. And you're trying to find that world. But what's really interesting about this is that you can come at it from a script point of view. You go, I know what we need. Um, because it's mentioned in the script. But then Cass is so exciting because she throws all that into the wind. And so imagery that would normally be kind of uh, predictable in a script kind of doesn't exist. So it's so much more fluid and exciting for a designer to approach, but mm, mainly because mm. of your background and how you can, like, you know... like I can't Yeah, that's, this is one example. of the first scripts I've ever... Well, you know, I come from... Dog Show, another show we worked on together, was fully devised. The Mermaid was fully devised. I've worked a lot with The Rabble, which is all visual-based theatre. So my um, knowledge of scripts is actually different, you know. Like, it's not my first language. My first language is visual and is what is the body doing in space and what is the image that we are presenting, which is why our collaboration is so important. And so trusting. And so trusting, yeah. What are the challenges, then, of working with a script in this way if it's not a familiar theatrical idiom for you um I think the biggest challenge is is going I 
actually kind of realising how good the script is. Like the script is so good. It's such a base as a director to lead you through something. These characters are so well formed. The language in this work is amazing. And I think it's trusting both. So that's been the biggest challenge. But it's also been incredibly freeing and really joyful and, you know, is part of my practice that I, you know, I'm very much going to continue this year and next and working with scripts but coming at it from a visual perspective is something that I'm really excited by. But, yeah, it's challenging but also great because it's all there. Mm. It's like all the language and the poetics and the pleasure within this text is there. So then you can kind of go, oh, but what could that look like? Oh, no, let's not do that. We don't need this. The audience can imagine, which is what I love about theatre, that audience can imagine. Talk to us about then picking up on some of those visual cues to to bounce off Dan in terms of the design. Uh, because, Dan, earlier you mentioned, for example, that we see the bones of the crocodile, mm. which knowing 45 downstairs immediately makes me think of the big pillars that yeah. kind of support the, the ceiling of the performance space, for example. So you've got the constraints of the venue to work with. You've got not the constraints of the text, but the what the text provides in terms of a of an outline for what you're going to do in this space. Talk to us about the creative conversations you had bouncing off each other to start sharing ideas as to how you would present this kind of satirical play uh, in 45 Downstairs, which can be a challenging space to work in. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was very clear that I didn't want a crocodile I really felt the absence of the animals, particularly because animals in this play are so disregarded and are so, you know, they are used to be hollowed out so that a human can live inside it, which is something I find incredibly grotesque. So I was very clear that we didn't want an and actual I, crocodile. And I pushed for... I thought we needed to give something. Like, it's like yeah. doing Metamorphosis, the yeah. Kafka play. It's like you don't want the bug on stage, but you want to allude to the, the characteristics of him turning into a beetle. Uh, and this felt the same, but I we, and I pushed you on the bones. We like yeah, and the bones are so brilliant because it's like here's this animal, but he's been repurposed and is dead and is yeah. now, you know, a hat or a glove or is this... So it is grotesque, and you were big on that. You were, always said, I want it to be grotesque when he's inside, pushing his way through the flesh of the crocodile, making his way down to its feet. Um, and so the bones came from that. There's a grotesqueness in the costume when he's kind of revealed at one point. A grotesqueness to the characters. There's yeah. it's this really rich palette, I think, that we were given with that we were like, okay, if we don't have a crocodile, what does the crocodile represent? And yeah. what is the crocodile a metaphor for? And if, if it is all of the things that consume us in late-stage capitalism, which feels really right... Yeah, then this th thirst for fame the th is the main thing for Ivan. Absolutely. And, this, and attention yeah. and, and how do you and how do you satirise really... Well, you really go there. You like go like five million places past the line. Yeah. And the design has definitely done that. And it's, we're pushed it to the gothic, of course. Like, we just couldn't, we couldn't help ourselves. So, <laughs> it's got, it's got it, to, and it's full of surprises. At I times mean, it turns into a monster kind of movie, which is great. Which is great. And, it, you know, we've got a character who is our female lead who is absolutely a victim of the patriarchy and, you know, moves through the world in that way and, you know, is a cushion and yeah. also makes cushions. But the costumes are incredibly heightened. It has like a fashion, so like, uh, yeah. uh, like a Tim Walker fashion vibe to it. The, the set, and I think that's what we responded to 45 in that way, is that you could go into 45 and you could put, like, beautiful costumes just in front of that brick wall. 
We haven't used the brick wall, but we've responded to the brick wall. <laughs> and, we're, and it's all a zoo, you know. The animals are all sonic. So the, the, the absence of animal is actually, or a live animal is incredibly important dramaturgically. Yeah. And they're all in this enclosure that they, as actors, can't get out of. So we're kind of con... Continually so this, jumping. This yeah. is what like, I mean by Cass coming from a design, design point of view. It's about a device point of view because it's about ideas. Mm. And those ideas are like informing the costumes and the set rather than just being like... It's even the era. Like, for example, yeah. Ivan is an actor, so we've dressed him in Elizabethan clothing. It's the most obvious like actor thing, Hamlet with a skull and a ruff. And a ruff, yeah. And so that kind of opened it up so broadly for us so yeah. that everybody, every character is responding to an idea. And then the fact that you've referenced kind of monster movies and the grotesque and the gothic, for example, monster movies are very apt touchstone given that late-stage late capitalism is a monster. It is yeah. devouring us all yeah. and the planet along with it. And that's, you know, I couldn't have thought of a better work actually to make as an artist now, you know, responding to this adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation. I'm re it's really exciting actually going, oh, my God, how do we make art? on a dying planet, how do we make work that is, you know, political and bold? And I think this is those things. Mm. And we've tried to think about yeah. that in terms of um, its sustainability. All the costumes are made from op shop finds that have been repurposed and cut together to create. Yeah. So a jacket has been turned into a doublet. Um, leather jackets have been turned into doublets. And, like, we've spent $40 from Savers on lace curtains that has been turned into this, like, ridiculous fashion rough dress. The whole um, set is made yeah. of cardboard boxes. It's just, yeah, yeah it's this really poor theatre design, but in the most glorious and turned way. Up, turned, turned up to 100. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell us about the, the cast, Cass. You've got a cast of four? Yeah, got a cast of four. So James Cachet, uh, Jess Stanley, Kate Spiker and Joey Lee. And they are awesome. They play this ensemble troupe group of players who put this on. Uh, James is playing Ivan. Jess is playing Anya. Kate is playing ten men. And Joey is playing Zach. And the building is playing the crocodile. And the building is playing the crocodile. But so is the box. <laughs> I have to remember that yeah. as well. Um, and what about some of the other design elements? So, um, Dan, you're working with a, a collaborator on costume? Oh, yeah. Or? So I have a design associate, uh, Savannah Wegman, and, uh, and a costume maker, costume supervisor, Alex Aldridge, who have been absolutely incredible. Mm. And, of course, my mum has always, always involved. <laughs> and my dad. It's a big family um, uh, endeavour to put on an independent show. And I don't think it will ever change, and it's kind of its <laughs> choice about the whole thing. But yeah, um, Savannah and Alex have been so incredible. Um, working, they've worked so hard. Oh, Alex so is hard. on Harry Potter, and so she works during the night, and then during the day she's been sewing a rough dress. So, um, and I think she's, yeah, I don't know, she looks she's, very tired. She looks very <laughs> tired, but the, they've done phenomenal work. Like, it's yeah. really an independent theatre show with a lot of love. And uh, sound design and lighting design? Gabe is on sound design and I'm going to mispronounce his surname and I'm sorry, Gabe, you're amazing. He's created this kind of really gothic but also animal soundscape that's really amazing. And Spencer Hurd is our lighting designer and he, yeah, he's also been incredible. It's been a big world to play with and it's been a really tight bump in and we're exhausted but excited. Yeah, and the languages are all like intertwined quite beautifully and the collaboration has been really strong. Yeah. yeah. Right. The Crocodile is on at 45 downstairs, opening tonight and running <laughs> through uh, until the 26th yeah. of February. Yeah. Uh, so uh, um, there's an Auslan interpreted performance next Wednesday the 22nd uh, and 
showtimes, Tuesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sunday at 1.30pm and 5pm as well. So you can have an exhausted cast on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> but um, uh, tickets are 22 to 48 bucks, and you can book by calling 9662-9966. So 9662-9966. Or, and you can jump online, 45 downstairs. That's the words, 45 downstairs.com for details if you want to book to see The Crocodile which sounds like it's going to be great bloody fun. You had your first preview last night what was it like to be in front of an audience? Oh my god so good. We had a big school group in and it was just you know I will, the audience is very much our fifth performer in this they're very active they're very part of it and they were whooping and howling and ah and ah and it was <laughs> glorious to watch with an audience. So our fifth character has definitely arrived. Fantastic. So The Crocodile at 45downstairs.com opening tonight, running through until the 26th of February. Thank you both for coming in. Thank uh, you. Cass and Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 